Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. This episode will look at Gojian, the king of the Chinese state of Yue, a nearly legendary figure in Chinese history, who suffered and toiled, at times in a state of true misery, in order to get revenge against a rival king. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 2, Gojian, and this is The Almost Forgotten. Gojian was born at the end of an era in Chinese history known as the Spring and Autumn Period. The exact timing of this period is debated, but it is generally considered to have started in 771 BC when the reigning but weakened feudal Zhou dynasty suffered a major defeat, the king was killed, and the court moved east. This led from a period of decentralizing Zhou authority to a decentralized system with only nominal Zhou power outside of their immediate territory. The spring and autumn period of Chinese history ends in 481 BC, which is what the 5th century BC spring and autumn annals cover. Or it ends in 476 BC, which is where the indispensable historian Sima Chuan places it. Or it ends in 453 BC when Jin was partitioned. Or in 403 when, you know what? It was the period when there was still some pretense of Zhou authority before the Warring States period when that went away completely, basically. Anyway, at the beginning of the 5th century BC, when Gojian flourished, the Yueji people lived on the steppes to the north and west of China. To the southwest, India was in the Mahajanapada period, when 16 or so kingdoms began to vie for power and an urban culture reappeared on the subcontinent. To their west, the mighty Persian Empire reigned from the western banks of the Indus River across much of Central Asia to the Mediterranean shores in Anatolia as well as Egypt. Gojian's life coincided with Darius the Great, who suppressed the Ionian Revolt in the 490s and took many more Greek city-states before his invasion finally stalled at the Battle of Marathon in 490. The Athenians were the victors at Marathon, which helped usher in a golden age for Athens. But certainly, as the century began, Sparta was the power of Greece, as it had been for over a hundred years. To Persia's south, the kingdom of Gerha controlled the southern shores of the Persian Gulf, and the kingdom of Meroe flourished in Nubia, south of Egypt. In northwest Africa, as well as parts of Sardinia and Sicily, the city of Carthage ruled over a maritime empire based on trade, treaties, and political alliances, rather than outright conquest, for the most part. Carthage's future nemesis, the Roman Republic, was in its infancy, having overthrown their last king in 509 BC. They were at war with the Latin League, and the Battle of Lake Regulus was a major victory that helped solidify the burgeoning state, which took place in the 490s. But the Etruscan League to their north was the biggest power in Italy. Various Celtic people ruled over areas of much of the lands to their north, across much of Western and Central Europe, 
while Germanic cultures lived further north. In the Western Hemisphere, the Olmec may have been the biggest power, although this Mesoamerican civilization, based in today's states of Tabasco and Veracruz, was nearing the start of its decline. The Maya, over in the Yucatan, were still in what is considered their pre-classical period, and were starting to build large cities. To their south, the Chavan culture was the largest of several cultures on the Andean highlands along the Pacific coast of South America. And now, going across the Pacific back to China, Gojian lived in the state of Yue, on the outskirts of the nominal Zhou kingdom. But we should probably step backwards to see how we get to Gojian's story. So as I mentioned, the spring and autumn period, a name taken from chronicles that was probably just using an idiom to denote the passage of a year, was the time when the reigning Zhou dynasty moved east and had little to no authority over their vassals. Much of the detail we have from this period comes from not that chronicle which lent its name to the era, but by the surviving chronicles from the Warring States period, that is, the time in Chinese history right after the spring and autumn period, which led directly to the short-lived Qin dynasty and then the Roman contemporary and often compared Han dynasty. And speaking of Roman, when it comes to the sources, it feels very analogous with Gojian's story to those in the classical Mediterranean. His story is more than just a series of events recorded on stone tablets we have for ancient figures. That's because they don't come from steely dug up a few millennia later. Instead, they are from actual writings that occurred during or soon after his lifetime. These were from nearly contemporaneous sources. For example, the Zhuozhuan recorded much of what occurred in the period, likely from many sources that have not survived. Because of this, in the Cambridge History of Ancient China, author Cho Yun-shu writes, quote, Despite a lack of corroborating evidence from other sources, there is no reason to doubt the details of political and military activities given in the Zhuozhuan, or the roles played by prominent figures in it, unquote. Okay, so the spring and autumn period saw 15 significant states hold real power, states such as Qi, Jin, Chu, and Qin. Most of these were Zhou feudal states, and all of them stated they were part of the system, although the states of Chu, Wu, and Yue were not of Zhou background. These were states in the south and east of the main Zhou lands back when it was a real power, and had seen military outposts in their land, but not the full administration of the kingdom. Shu describes the states thusly, Quote, the native populations in these states, some of whom may have been members of old eastern states, while others were probably tribal peoples, the barbarians, were ruled as subjects, but without membership in the state of a type that could be compared to the citizenship in the Greek city-states, unquote. In the 8th century, the Zhang state was the power, fending off barbarian incursions, punishing other states in the name of the Zhou kingdom when they didn't fall in line with the king's wishes. They started getting too big for their britches, which was probably not a direct quote from the Zhou king, but he raised a coalition of his lords to put Zhang back in its place, and a battle was fought in 707 BC. Instead, the royal army was defeated, the king was wounded, and, well, it was kind of hard for him to call himself the son of heaven with a straight face when some Zhang archer had been able to stick an arrow in his shoulder. It was at that point, according to Xu, that Zhou's authority became almost non-existent, and he became a figurehead, nothing more. 
Zhang's victory made it the leader of a system with a nominal king. Although they didn't have an official title, eventually the leaders would be referred to as hegemons. The term five hegemons is often used, and there are various lists of who the five hegemons were during the spring and autumn period. But that number referred to in ancient texts isn't necessarily meant to be taken literally. The state of Qi was the next hegemon, and started in the northeast of Zhou lands, expanding west and swallowing up smaller states, while also reforming its internal governing structure to become the most powerful state. This hegemony, by the way, was not a historical reevaluation. The Zhou king at the time named Duke Huan of Qi as Ba, the title now translated as hegemon. The Ba was given authority to lead armies in the name of Zhou against invaders and against other states that were bucking the system. The state of Jin took charge in the latter half of the 7th century BC and, like the Qi, led a group of states that in many ways was ruled by consensus. They met together at grand conferences to discuss interstate affairs, such as commerce and infrastructure. But Jin was the hegemon, and they were the military force that helped expand the Zhou kingdom further south. This expansion is part of what helped a unified Chinese culture coalesce. However, it eventually became clear that several states would be vying for power, and by the middle of the 6th century, a balance was somewhat established. Jin and Qi in the north, Qin in the west, and Chu in the south were the leading states, and at one point actually agreed to an early sort of disarmament treaty in order to de-escalate tensions. But while the major conflicts between these states began to recede, there were other people in the region who could cause trouble. The 6th century also saw the rise of the Wu in the southeast. Jin's strategy in order to keep their rivals Chu at bay would be to sponsor Wu attacks on Chu. The Wu state began to absorb smaller Chu allies and grew in power. They would repeatedly send in a third of their army to sack areas of Chu. These may have been relatively quick strikes because it seems to have spread Chu's defenses thin. Wu wasn't using their whole army, but Chu had a massive territory to defend and couldn't seem to anticipate where Wu attacks would end up. According to Xu, quote, Chu therefore became exhausted. In 506 BC, Wu launched a full-scale invasion of Chu, defeating it in five consecutive battles and bringing it to the edge of total collapse, unquote. In other words, for Chu leadership at the time, the Wu was coming through, the outcome was critical. It appears that Helu, the king of Wu, was able to take out such a powerful opponent with a brilliant strategy that left Chu flailing and unable to stop him. Perhaps at least some of this credit goes to Helu's leading military advisor, Sun Tzu, author of The Art of War. Helu sailed the Wu army west along the Huai River, north of the Yangtze. From there, he marched them fully into Chu territory to the banks of a Yangtze tributary. Several small battles were fought. Wu was victorious, but near the city of Boju, the full forces were drawn up. The leading Chu general came up with a plan to march with some of the Chu forces around the Wu, destroy their ships, and then return an attack from the rear, while the rest of the Chu army entrenched themselves on the opposite side of the river and waited. Then, when he returned, they would both attack the now-surrounded Wu army and crush them. But the prime minister, who was leading the entrenched army, thought he wouldn't get any glory 
or the general was trying to become so popular he'd get to be in charge, something along those lines. So he didn't wait for the rest of the forces to return. He attacked, and he got crushed. The Wu army routed the Chu and kept pursuing them until they took the Chu capital itself. But they didn't hold the city for long. After their victory, the Wu experienced a setback when Qin sent an army to help Chu out and defeated Wu in battle in 505 BC. But the damage was done, and Chu was set back on its heels and declined as a power for a little over a century. Wu was the new power in the south at the turn of the century. However, they faced an upstart challenger of their own in the state of Yue. Both states were, at the beginning of the 6th century, outside of the Zhou hegemony, but by the end, they were at least partially enmeshed within it. Wu and Yue fought each other for control of the Yangtze Delta region in the south, probably for much of the century, and even with Wu's rise, Yue was still a formidable opponent. That is, until Wu grew in strength to vie for the title of hegemon itself. And this is where Gojin's story really starts, in 496 BC, with the death of his father, Yuncheng, the king of Yue. Helu used this opportunity to attack. No doubt he was building up to make this move once the fight with Chu and the others settled down, and the opportunity wasn't to be missed with Yuncheng's death. But Yue's young new king, probably in his 20s, Gojian, was able to mount a surprisingly effective resistance. He reversed the onslaught and handed Wu a defeat. In the process, King Helu was mortally wounded. In the defense of Yue lands, Gojian was particularly brutal, enough so that it was noteworthy for the ancient chroniclers. Helu, with his dying breath, told his son Fuchai to seek revenge and never forget who was responsible for this. Fuchai became king of Wu and began plotting his revenge. Gojian knew what was coming and so planned an attack himself rather than waiting for Wu to attack again. According to Paul A. Cohen in his book on Gojian, he quote, asked his trusted minister, Fan Li, what he thought about a preemptive strike against Wu. Fan Li, observing that Yue was not nearly as strong as Wu, urged the young king to be patient. However, convinced he knew best, Gojian went ahead and attacked Wu anyway. The year was 494 BC, unquote. Wu was ready, and Gojian was driven back. He and a group of a few thousand men were surrounded and trapped, on Mount Kuaji, which was an important historical site in ancient China. There, Gojian was ready to face his death, near where the legendary King Yu the Great had died, and mount a final hopeless counterattack. But his advisors asked him to go and beg Fuchai for mercy, to offer himself and his wife up as slaves, anything to save Yue itself, which would surely be absorbed and destroyed by Wu. Fuchai was not interested in a long and protracted pacification of Yue. He was, at this point, one of the, if not the, single most powerful Chinese king. But he probably still didn't have the resources to send men into Yue to tamp down any rebellion there and still keep his northern neighbors at bay. Seeing an opportunity to keep Yue, but have it be a vassal kingdom, nominally under Gojian, he allowed Gojian, along with his wife, as well as Fan Li, his trusted advisor, to become his servant. 
Yue was allowed to survive as a client kingdom, and Gojian's ministers seemed to have mostly been allowed to remain in place. Again, Yue was considered the southern hinterlands. It might not have been feasible for Wu to go in and truly to rule it themselves. And so, in 492 BC, Gojian became the slave of King Fuchai, doing tasks such as sweeping the floors of his palace and taking care of the horses. Together with his wife and leading advisor, he lived in a small hut near the palace. Three years. For three years he toiled for Fuchai, who was amazed at Gojian's subservience and lack of complaining. He began to pity his rival king and thought he might even set him free, despite one of his advisor's vehement protestations. Then, Fuchai became ill for a few months, and Gojian begged to see the king. At that point, he supposedly tasted the king's urine and stool and proclaimed he would soon recover. Well, Gojian's taste buds may have never recovered from that, but Fuchai did. At this point, he was thrilled with Gojian, who, because he first shoveled all the crap around the palace and then ate it, had convinced him that he was his loyal and humble servant. Nothing could have been further from the truth, and Fuchai's advisor told him just this, but Gojian was set free. Returning to Yue in 490 BC, humbled but bent on revenge for, for I guess the initial attack that Wu made when his father died, he was given a small kingdom within the larger Yue sub-kingdom to rule and became a vassal lord to Fuchai and he began the next stage of his plan. He went to this little kingdom. He worked, and he worked, and he worked some more. Revenge was always on his mind, but he realized that the best revenge is success. Well, and actual revenge, but we'll get to that. As far as the success goes, it is told that in order to ensure he did not slacken in his pursuit of strengthening and growing his kingdom, he would sleep on a bed of sticks and always have bile nearby to taste in order to remind him of his bitterness and keep him awake. A Chinese proverb translated as to sleep on brushwood and taste gall comes from his determination to remember his suffering and to even extend it as a source of motivation. So what did he do to try and achieve this success? He worked to reform his small kingdom's government. He reduced taxes and the often very strict punishments of the era in order to placate the populace, making them more willing to fight for him to fight for Yue. And he gathered a group of ministers and actually listened to them, took their advice on how to improve things. In the end, one of his advisors came up with nine strategies he must employ to eventually take his revenge on the kingdom of Wu. I won't go through all the strategies, but some of them were things like follow proper religious practices, while other were things like bribe enemy advisors and get the best weapons and training for Yue soldiers. In the process of the reforms and following these strategies, he built out a great army. He went and found the best swordsmen and archers he could to train his warriors. This included employing a young woman from the forests of Yue who had become renowned for her sword fighting abilities. And, with all of the prosperity he had brought to Yue, he was able to pay his soldiers well, creating an army that was really willing to fight for him. All the while, he kept working his relationship with Fuchai to keep that king unaware of his true intentions, even divert his attention. Gojian gave him gifts of fine cloth, which led to Fuchai giving him more lands as a vassal lord. Gojian also gave him timber, which fed Fuchai's obsession with building projects, 
diverting his resources and his men. He sent beautiful concubines to Wu in an effort to distract Fu Chai, which seems to have been successful. Fu Chai, for his part, probably saw little threat from Gojian, who had behaved as a perfectly subservient vassal and was king of a backwards poor territory anyway, according to the belief of the rest of China. After five or six years back in charge, Gojian was finally ready to attack but his advisors cautioned that Wu was not sufficiently weakened from wars with its powerful northern neighbors, and he should continue to bide his time. And let's be clear, Wu was not weakened at the time. They had went to work on the Qin and defeated them. They had fought Jin as well, or at least convinced Jin that Wu was too powerful to fight, because in 482, at one of those conferences between the states, Fu Chai was named the Ba, the hegemon, this conference, though, proved to be the perfect time for Gojian to strike. Fu Chai was off north in negotiations with the other Chinese kings, convincing them that he deserved to be considered the hegemon of the age. With all his enemies at the conference, he brought his best troops for protection and intimidation. And that is when Gojian led a massive Yue army into Wu, quickly overrunning the capital and killing the crown prince. What we get next from the stories seem incomplete. Fu Chai and Gojian reached an accord, a treaty was signed, and Gojian returned to Yue, with Wu significantly weakened. It is quite possible that Fu Chai returned with the bulk of his army and defeated Gojian, or simply made Gojian understand that a full victory was impossible. Regardless, a shaky peace was arranged, and the two went back to their respective corners. Gojian returned to Yue, plotting his next bold revenge stroke, still sleeping on brushwood and tasting gall, while Fu Chai went back to his life of luxury, enamored with a legendary beauty that had actually been sent by Yue to distract him. Six years later, in 476, Gojian was ready to lead another army into Wu and finish the job he had started earlier. He fought the Wu armies after crossing into their territory and is recorded to have won victory after victory although we don't know if these were pitched battles or just skirmishes. But he soon besieged the Wu capital, which was located in what is the modern-day city of Suzhou. It's about 100 kilometers west of Shanghai, on the edge of a lake in the Yangtze River Delta. Although the initial Yue attack was forced back, a follow-up attack was successful, and Gojian took the city. This wasn't the end of Fuchai, though, who retreated with the remnants of his army to the nearby mountains. Three years of conquest to finally subdue the Wu state, and Gojian was able to surround Fu Chai and his remaining forces. Fu Chai knew it was over, and although he was offered a sort of slavery-slash-exile, similar to what he had given Gojian, he eventually drew his sword and committed suicide. Gojian soon met with the other dukes, lords, princes, and kings who ruled over the various Chinese states, they confirmed his status as ruler of Yue. And Yue now included the region formerly known as the Wu Kingdom. He also returned the lands that Wu had conquered and convinced the other leaders to give him the title of overlord, making him, arguably, the last of the ancient Chinese five hegemons. After the conquest, the advisor family retired, despite Gojian's protests, probably because he was old, tired, and wealthy but also because he feared that his king would never be content and eventually turn on his own advisors. Fan Li wrote a letter explaining this to one of the other leading advisors, who ignored him, 
and was, some years later, asked to take his own life by King Gojian. Gojian himself died in 465 BC, after reigning for nearly 30 years, and that includes the three years as a servant in Fuchai's court. He passed his kingdom on to his son and warned his successor to be ever vigilant that it would never be easy for the heir of an overlord to rule as effectively. He may have also passed his sword to his son. This seems like an unimportant little tidbit, but it is a truly legendary artifact, something that sounds like it is out of a fantasy epic discovered in 1965 in a tomb in what was the ancient Chu capital, the Sword of Gojian is notable for its sharpness and its resistance to corrosion. It's a brilliant bronze color, with etchings of diamonds up and down its blade, and eight characters of ancient script, indicating that it was indeed the Sword of Gojian himself. So how did it end up in Chu? Well, that's not entirely clear. It could have been a gift, but Chu might have just taken it because Chu, along with the state of Qi, finally triumphed over the Yue state about 150 years after Gojian died. Their triumphs didn't last a century, though, as the Qin state eventually overwhelmed them all, uniting the former Zhou kingdom into a new empire, the Qin dynasty. Gojian was an intelligent leader. The sources from the generation or two after his death paint the picture of a complicated man who was thoughtful about his actions even if some of those actions seem unspeakable to us today. According to Cohen, quote, Gojian demonstrated considerable sensitivity and compassion, introducing social, economic, and legal measures designed to ease the lot of his subjects, enrich them, and earn their support. But he was capable of unbelievable cruelty, not only towards his enemies, but even towards his own people, unquote. Tales of setting his own ships on fire while his men were still aboard to encourage their fighting clash with his attendance of funerals of his subjects and care of homeless and hungry children he came across in his kingdom. Mostly, though, Gojian was a great strategist whose desire for revenge taught him, over all else, to use extreme patience to his advantage. He worked incredibly hard, not just when he was Fuchai's servant, but back in his own kingdom, to get what he needed. And he was a great general, His military successes were impressive, and his defeat of Wu indicate that he was able to defeat the great Sun Tzu. And he was willing to wait years to accomplish all of this, something that has made him an historical figure that is still referenced today in China as a hero who is worth emulating. Next episode, we'll move forward over a thousand years, and south a bit, to a king who helped break away from China and was an integral part in forming an independent state that survives today. Thanks for listening. 